Why would we call a building block on baptism baptized in his name? We're going to get at that today. First, we're going to talk a little bit about a term that I hope becomes more familiar with you longer you're around this church, um, even if it sounds uh, unfamiliar or academic or unapproachable, I hope that you can appreciate it this morning because it's what we're about to do for the next 40 minutes. Biblical theology. I want to take a minute to introduce you to a term, a discipline really, called biblical theology. Now, no one ever sits down and opens their Bible and just reads their Bible with a pure, unprejudiced framework. No one does that. You have your background experiences. You have your cultural uniqueness. You have a language difference from the original languages. Uh, you have your church experience that you grew up in. You've had sermons that you've heard. You had things that you heard about God when you were a kid or saw in a movie that affected the way you think. None of us ever sat down and just opened the Bible and have no problem just knowing what it says because we are not in some way potentially in our own way. So we're going to read the Bible with some framework, with some idea of how the Bible works and how it fits together. Can you name your framework? Can you really say, this is how I am looking through Scripture on purpose? This is how I open the Bible and how I read it. If not, we could be in danger of doing something unfaithful. So a biblical theology is a way for us to be careful about handling the Bible biblically. Basically handling it the way that it tells us to handle it. So here's a, a short definition of biblical theology. A short definition. Biblical theology studies how the whole Bible progresses, integrates, and climaxes in Christ. Biblical theology studies how the whole Bible progresses, integrates, and climaxes in Christ. I'm not smart enough to come up with stuff like this. This is from 40 questions about biblical theology that you see on the right there. And for the, the geekier students of you, there's a longer definition there for you to wrestle with. Uh, later on. So studying how the Bible progresses, integrates, and climaxes in Jesus Christ. Now some of you might think, well yeah, isn't that what we're always doing? I mean, isn't this just, isn't this what we do when we open our Bibles? I would hope that if you've been at Millwood for any amount of time, you would hear that definition and go, that's what we're always doing, <coughs> in some sense. That sounds like sermons I've heard. That sounds like building blocks that I've heard. It sounds like Bible studies that I've been to. Um, but what biblical theology will tend to do is to find a theme, find a subject, and trace it through salvation history. So we're going to be doing that with baptism today, for example. Now, a lot of people will sometimes accuse biblical theology of being topical. Isn't this just kind of grabbing topics and going to the Bible and then picking passages about that, about that topic? So here's a couple of reasons. I think I have four there. Why biblical theology is different than topical. We're not talking about just topical Bible studies and just trying to find uh, passages that have to do with our, our subject. Uh, number one, the text sets the themes. The text sets the themes. So what are the themes that we're studying in Scripture? It's the themes that are in Scripture. We let the Bible tell us what to look for in the Bible. 
So the text sets the themes. It's not biblical theology if the text isn't telling you what theme you should be looking for. All right, when we study biblical theology, we want to include authorial intent as well as literary, historical, and cultural context. Authorial intent, literary, historical, cultural context. So biblical theology does not negate and it does not exclude trying to understand what Luke meant when he wrote Acts to a certain audience in a certain time in a certain culture. Biblical theology doesn't exclude that. It's doing that. But with a vision of how does it connect to the whole Bible. Uh, Thirdly, biblical theology is not driven by philosophical or extra-biblical questions. So we're not starting with philosophy and then going to the Bible and going, what does it say? You know, what does the Bible say about the speed of light? Let's just go run that through the Bible. Biblical theology is saying there are themes in the Bible that are asking us to look at them through the whole of Scripture. So this doesn't start with extra-biblical. It starts from within the Bible. Lastly, biblical theology is born from reading the Bible and inductively discovering literary and theological themes. So you could just say it's born from inductive discovery. We're looking for literary, theological themes and frameworks as we read the Bible inductively. What does it say to us? So this is not just let's pick a topic and just kind of find places in the Bible where it might be talking about that. We're looking for themes the Bible is telling us to look for. So things that this means for studying the Bibles, for studying the Bible, the one Bible, we only have one Bible, your Bibles. Uh, If we're going to be studying how the whole Bible progresses, integrates, and climaxes in Christ, things like word searches are insufficient. These are just a couple of things. Word searches are insufficient when we're studying the Bible. So we cannot learn about baptism, for example, simply by word searching baptism. What would be some problems with that? What might be some problems with word searching baptism so that we could learn about baptism? Any thoughts? That, would that be any, creating any trouble for us? Wouldn't that just take us to all the passages that talk about baptism? No? Too broad? Okay, what do you mean too broad? I think you're on to something. Many different religions believe baptism Okay. In a different way. Yeah, a lot of religions have different ideas about baptism. Yeah. If we're word searching baptism in the Bible, is that sufficient? You go, you go on your logos or your, you know, what? Uh, what's the other one? I can't think of it right now. Yeah. Um, just like with other word searches, sometimes the topic is addressed without using that word. Okay, sometimes the topic might be addressed, but it's not actually using that word. Absolutely right. It happens all the time. What else? Does baptism always mean the same thing everywhere that it's used? No, we have to be careful. Baptism means a lot of different things. There's multiple ways that it's used, multiple things that it's referring to uh, in Scripture. Uh, if you search the word baptism, how many references do you think you'll get from the Old Testament in English or Greek, the Greek translation of the Old Testament? Good guess, zero. Good guess, zero. You're not going to find it there. 
Uh, baptism or baptize is not in the Old Testament or the Greek translation, the Greek word baptizo that we see so frequently in the New Testament. It's not there. So would we conclude then that the Old Testament has nothing to say about the meaning of baptism for the New Testament church? We surely wouldn't just conclude it from that word search. <laughs> uh, we want to see, is there things in the Old Testament that connect to the New Testament? All right. So word churches are insufficient. Number two. Uh, we assume a single-purposed divine authorship, which means unity. <clears throat> the entire Bible is God-breathed, telling one single story of salvation. It requires us to read the Bible as it's given to us as progressive revelation. Anybody know what that word means that sound like anything to you the word progressive revelation what does that mean to you when you hear that that term you learn more and more as it goes on more and more as you go on yeah did god reveal everything to adam no he didn't did god reveal everything to abraham he revealed some things to abraham that abraham didn't even know what they meant that israel didn't even know what they meant so we have a progressive revelation that continues to build on itself uh through time and through uh, through history. Uh, number three, you cannot read the New Testament without the Old Testament and vice versa. You cannot study the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. That's very broad, and I think you all would agree with that. But it really comes down to anything that we're studying. The New Testament comes from and is connected to the Old Testament. Uh, has anybody ever seen this uh, graph before? That rainbow looking thing that's in there? You've seen that? Uh, this is by a guy, I think I put the footnote on there for you. This is by a guy named Chris Harrison, a computer scientist, actually. He, he did this graph in response to a guy named Sam Harris. Anybody ever heard of Sam Harris? Uh, atheist, uh, wrote a book called Letters to Christians, or Letters to a Christian Nation, something like that. Um, Sam Harris actually had a chart put together of all the places in the Bible that he thought were contradictory. And it's just, it's all, it's all red lines. This, by, this passage contradicts with this passage, with this passage contradicts with, it's the same arc. And so this guy said, well, let's put together one with all the passages that allude to each other or reference each other. So he took all the cross-references from the King James Bible and made this chart with 63,000-something references. Uh, it's just a wonderful picture, I think, to show that the Bible is its interconnected. Uh, it is one whole from Genesis to Revelation. It's not a bunch of books. It's not two halves. It's one. It's one unit. So when we're looking at biblical theology, anytime we're, we're studying a theme in salvation, we're studying from the beginning to the end to understand its, its, full, its full meaning. Okay? All right, let's go to uh, next thing. How do we do biblical theology? How do we do that? A couple ways. We trace a theme's salvation historical progression. We trace a theme's salvation historical progression. Now, that sounds really wordy, but it just means we're taking a theme and see how did it that theme develop through salvation historically. All God was doing in salvation from the garden to the garden 
how did that develop historically and theologically? Uh, number two, consider continuity and discontinuity between covenants. Continuity and discontinuity between covenants. There are some things between the new and the old covenant that are almost the exact same. There are some things between the new and the old covenant that are not alike at all. The new covenant is very unique in those things. So biblical theology we have to consider if we're going to look at any concepts of baptism and what it means in the Old Testament, we might have some things that are the same and some things that are different in the New Testament. Uh, number three, track promise and fulfillment. Track promise and fulfillment. If there's a promise made in the Old Testament, where is it fulfilled? Immediately, temporally, later, spiritually? That can be a hard, hard study. Number four, track type and anti-type. Type and anti-type. Anybody know what those words mean? That sound familiar to you? Type and anti-type. <laughs> Any ideas? Okay, seminary student, go ahead. Go ahead. No. Like a symbol. A symbol. Yeah, what, what all could be included in something being a symbol? I mean, is, is Jonah a type of something better to come? Yeah, that would be a great example. People are usually the antitypes. Jonah, David, Moses. We have characters that are foreshadowing Christ in the future. Or sometimes we have um, religious procedures in the Old Covenant that have their spiritual or physical fulfillments in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. So pictures, shadows in the Old Testament, as Colossians calls them, shadows and real things. A great a new example would be the temple itself. The, the temple wasn't the, the first and final thought God had about temple drawings. Where did that come from? It was, yeah, it was from the actual throne of heaven that Moses saw, those plans. So we want to trace types and antitypes. So tell me, what, what is an antitype? Antitype would be, the, in this case, the actual one. So you have a, a type in the Old Testament, and then you have the fulfillment in the New Testament, broadly speaking. How are you spelling that? A-N-T-I-T-Y-P-E. Okay. Yeah. So the antitype doesn't mean it's, it means it's the original. Correct. It's not, it's not the opposition. It's the fulfillment. It's the one. Yeah. Sounds contrary, but yeah. All right, number five, consider the New Testament use of the Old Testament. Anytime the New Testament is quoting or alluding to the Old Testament, then we need to be looking at that. We need to be looking at the Old Testament context. We need to be looking at the New Testament context. We need to be tracking that down. Some of these things, <clears throat> I think if you're reading your Bible thoroughly and often, you're going to tend this direction without any academic training. I think I've seen that at this church. You, you come and you, you learn how the Bible talks about itself and uses itself. Uh, you're going to learn the Bible is put together as one whole unit. We're going to reference it. We've all got reference Bibles at home. Uh, this is a discipline that's born from frameworks within Scripture. This is not saying, you know what, there's all these different ways to study the Bible. Let's, let's, pick, let's just pick our favorite way. 
biblical theology is suggesting there are frameworks within Scripture, and Scripture is telling us that, so we need to study them and pursue them and understand them. So all that to say, that, that begins why we, that explains why in part we might begin to study baptism in the book of Genesis. Why in a building block on baptism would we ever begin in the book of Genesis? Uh, let's just look at Matthew chapter 28 real quick. Matthew chapter 28. I think it's in your, uh, your books at the very end. <coughs> I don't know if I put it on there or not. Matthew twenty-eight, sixteen through twenty. Go in your Bibles or go to the the back sheet there. All right, somebody read that for us. Matthew twenty-eight, verse sixteen through twenty. All right, somebody read Acts 2, 37 and 38. Greg, you got that one? Yeah, yeah. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay. In Matthew 28, verse 19, and Acts 2, two pivotal moments when Jesus is uh, commanding baptism Matthew, and when Peter is calling for baptism in Acts 2, what does it refer to baptism as in verse 28:19 and Acts 2:38? What do you think it means to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? What does it mean to be baptized in the name? Any guesses? What do you think? First, these are talking about the same thing. Okay. They're yeah. Not, we're not talking about two different kinds yep. of definitions of baptism. Yeah, we're talking about Jesus's baptism. I baptized Paul. He said, "Do this." Then Peter's doing the thing. Yeah. Okay. Baptized in the name. Ownership? Sorry. Belonging or ownership. Belonging or ownership. What makes you say that? <laughs> <laughs> A Tim Keller sermon. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, the name that's on you. Yeah? What do we think in English when we think about something being in the name? Where do we use that kind of language? Brand names. Brand names. Okay. Authority. 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 What makes you say authority, Steve? Like what would be an example? I speak in the name of the queen. Okay. An ambassador. An ambassador. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
So, in battle. In battle. In the name of justice. Yeah. Ooh, good one. Good one. Yeah. Any others? Yeah, we're starting to get it here. There's a connection in being baptized in the name. There's two ways that you could kind of take this. One might be that I baptize you on the authority of Jesus. So I'm baptizing you in the name of because I have the authority to baptize you. The latter, uh, another understanding would be that we are baptizing you into the name. We are bestowing upon you the name by baptizing you. Jesus has already expounded his authority in Matthew chapter 28, verse uh, 17 there. All authority has been given to me, therefore go baptize them in the name. Make disciples, baptize them in the name. If you go to the, I don't think I put it anywhere in our, our sheet today, but if you go to the 1833 New Hampshire Confession of Faith, uh, John Newton actually phrases baptism that way baptized into the name meaning baptism is a formal taking on of the name before you were not under the name of the father son spirit before you were not in the name of jesus christ but now we are baptizing you in the name of the father son spirit or next to in the name of christ we want to go back to Genesis and begin to see how does the theme in the name begin. Bearing the name. Listen to what we just said. I think it sounds so familiar to us, but we've got to think about it for a second. When we're baptized, we're baptized in the name of God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When you're baptized, those are the names they were baptized in. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. Go back to that page that has that information on it for you. Page 4. So we're going to walk through, if we have time, I'm thinking we, we may have to do some catch-up next week. We want to do biblical theology. We want to look at in his name... A salvation historical progression. So do what we talked about earlier. In his name, you're not going to find the word baptism in the Old Testament. But we find God's name all over the place. And we find it from the very, the, those concepts from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 27. Somebody read that for us. I... <coughs> Uh, instead of saving space, I added the passages here uh, so that you would have them in front of you and you can mark them and also we could go more rapidly. Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Then God go said, let us make man in our image our <coughs> and and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What do you think it would have meant in cultural context for Adam and Eve to be created in the image and likeness of God? What does that mean? In their cultural context for Adam and Eve to be created in the image and likeness of God. 
What are our options? What, what does it mean to be the image and the likeness of God? How do we usually understand that or teach that or think about that? What does that mean? What's it mean to you when you hear that? Family connection. Family connection? Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's actually profound. That's a huge thing that happens from Adam to his son. The image moves on. You're going to say something? Representative. Representative. What makes you say that? Yeah. 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 Any others? Anything else? Often image and likeness is thought of as being like a a capacity. God can think, God can love, God can feel. So we can think and love and feel. We're we're like him, right? The the spiritual sense. Yeah. We're we're spiritual and God is spirit. That's right. Separates us from our dog, for example, and our plants. Yeah. Okay. There's an image aspect to it. There's a limited aspect of our our likeness to God. I think they're all true in some respect. Yeah, Brian. Lord of creation, he has authority to whatever he wants with creation. Mm-hmm. And he said, make them our image, let them rule over all this. Mm-hmm. So just in that verse alone, there's a similarity that they have with the Lord. Yeah, a, a ruling similarity. God has given them authority over creation. Yeah. In ancient contexts, when you, when you said someone was in so-and-so's image and likeness, a great example would be if you were to enter into Pharaoh, into Egypt during the time of uh, Ramesses II. When you came into Egypt, there would be a huge statue at the border in his image, in his likeness, saying, when you come into Egypt, you're coming into this guy's land. And also, you'll find multiple ancient texts, including Egyptian, which would have been Moses' time period, would have been where Moses grew up, where Pharaoh... And kings and queens are thought of as sons and daughters of God. And they are told to bear his image, their God's image and likeness. That this is what it meant to be someone's image and likeness. Uh, Not only a capacity like them, but to bear their authority on the earth. So when you see, you know, uh, Ramesses II, what do you see? Well, you would supposedly be seeing what... The Egyptian God is like. He has all of his power and he has all of his authority on the earth. <clears throat> Much like we see uh, Mount Rushmore. What is that, North Dakota, South Dakota, one of the Dakotas? Yeah, that there are images there that show what this land is about, what this people is about, and our, and our history. Uh, so we were created in God's image and likeness. When, when you would have read this and it's uh, first cultural context, image and likeness would have had those kinds of meanings. Adam and Eve, meaning all humanity, is created as God's image and likeness. The, the image of God 
uh, would communicate rulership, sonship, authority, power, likeness. These would have been understood as covenantal relationships as well. God has a certain relationship with the king. And as long as that king does what God says, the king is going to be just fine on the earth. You can see that when Jesus asked for a coin, whose image and likeness do you see? Yeah, him? yeah. And the implications from that render unto Caesar the yeah. things that were Caesar's. There's, there's belonging here. There's ownership there as well. So the point being, from the very beginning, God did not just create Adam and Eve abstractly. He did not only create them in terms of you know, ears where they are and hands where they are and you know, talking and our kinds of capacities because of what God is like. Being created in his image and likeness means we represent his rule. We are exercising his rule on the earth. Plants are not the image and likeness of God. Not only because they're not like him, but because they don't have authority to rule over creation. Dogs and cats, I know this is going to convict some of you, are not in the image and likeness of God. They do not rule the earth. They have not been given stewardship over God's creation. Adam and Eve have. Now, do you see some beginning of the idea of the name of God in Adam and Eve being created in an image and likeness of God. Now again, we don't see God's name anywhere in Genesis chapter 1. We don't really learn God's name till Abraham. Is there a similarity between the name in baptism in Matthew 28 and the image and likeness in Genesis 1? Yeah, what does Keller say, Leanne? Yeah. And so baptism is a picture of we're being, we're being sanctified back to representing Okay. So there's a difference there because there has to be some kind of conversion or forgiveness or something to get back there. So baptism is representing something like that and it's going in the water coming back up. Our unity with Christ who died and was raised. Yep. You know how in scripture in Matthew it says the church has been given the authority to bind on earth. Yeah. Okay. It's kind of, I'm thinking of that. Okay. Our name when we're given that authority because that is where we're going out and we're sharing the word, but then we agree, hey, this person is yeah. a person, a believer in Christ, then we baptize in the name of yeah. authority. Yeah. Thank you for picking the most difficult passage in the Bible to interpret, Matthew. <laughs> Matthew 18, the loosing and the binding. Yeah. Um, okay, but there's, you're seeing kind of authoritarian. Uh, similarity. Okay. Brian. There's another Genesis passage where the Lord God explains how Adam and Eve are, are like, uh, like him. In Genesis 3 22, uh, man has become like one of us, but he knows good and he knows evil. Okay. Share similar knowledge and ability to discern okay. what's good and bad. Okay. Any other ways our baptism in the name relates to Adam and Eve's image and likeness. We're seeing from the beginning, God did not start with baptism. We're seeing from the beginning, God has connected himself with mankind. 
authority, likeness, representation. That this is not a this is not a new thing that starts with Moses. This is not a new thing that starts with baptism. This is God's relationship with man fundamentally. And if there's anything the world has skewed today, one of the things one of the questions we are just baffled about is that we actually have a tether to God. He's created us in his image and likeness. All mankind was created in his image and likeness. But we, we know that we've fallen. We've sinned. That's what's wrong with the world. But it's hard to know all that's wrong with the world when we didn't know how we got here to begin with and what separates us from animals, what separates us from the rest of the creation, that we are in the image and likeness of God. We bear his name, in a sense, by exercising his rule in all of the earth. You're going to say something, John, or ask a question? Yeah, I was going to say, we're talking about name in, in the context of authority, and name in the context of, like, branding ownership, uh-huh. and then also an aspect I'm not sure we've brought out is uh, name is reputation. Yeah, it absolutely. Has to do with yeah. character, and you, you said, you know, you dragged our name in the mud, you know, by... Yes, yes. That's a huge, that's a huge thing. We're going to be getting to that as we go through. Um, in fact... So it is a picture of your character. Mm-hmm. And you, you, we equate that naturally. Our name, our reputation, our character. You have, mm-hmm. If you have a good name, a good name is, is, is a good thing to have. Yeah, Proverbs, Proverbs talks about that. Um, and we think about the fact that God has uh, created in him his image and then told them to go multiply. And fill the earth, so that his image is just filling the earth. His likeness is filling uh, the earth in that sense. Um, awful upside yeah. downness of our culture that mm-hmm. says we bear the image of lower forms of life. Yeah. All the way down to who and the swamp or yeah. just random yeah. matter. Just yeah. Lowest level. We just happen to be. So we're not that different from the plants or the bugs or the. No. apes or whatever we're just you know randomly it's yeah. no wrong yeah yeah absolutely all right let's move on let's go to genesis 17 genesis 17 and see we're on the other side of the fall now the other side of adam and eve's sin they're created in image and likeness but they sinned against god god sent them out of the garden because they've fallen short of the glory of god how paul would refer to it in romans 3 so we look at the name in the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 17, 7 through 8. Somebody read that for us. Genesis 17, 7 through 8. God talking to Abraham. Go ahead. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your so- sojourning all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. All right, what is Abraham's relationship to God in covenant terms? What's Abraham's relationship to God now in these covenant terms? He's a party. To be his God. Yeah, what, do, what all do you think that means, Janae? Like, you're, you're right. What all does that entail? Okay. So like to have authority over Abraham. Yeah. Um, and to guide him. And yeah. to be like the one who. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. You would have seen a lot of other nations have a lot of gods. As, as Israel later on gets into the land of Canaan, they don't just find a land filled with other nations. They find a land filled with nations' gods. And when God connects himself to Abraham on this side of the fall, God is coming in saying, I'm going to do something with you. I'm going to be your God, and you are going to be my people. Yeah. Mm, it is extremely personal. And it is also exclusive. I'm going to be God to you in a way I'm not going to be to other people. Other nations I'm going to bless through you. Other nations I will curse depending on their relationship with you. So we're obviously not looking at all the details of the Abrahamic covenant, which stretch from chapter 12, 15, and 17 and beyond. But we want to see that when God picks up a covenant with Abraham, it would have been understood as Abraham and the people are now God's people on the earth. God's reputation, his name, is now attached to Abraham. This is God's covenant with Abraham. You are my people. I am your God. So as the world watches what happens with you and what you do and what happens to you, they will come to know me in the earth. I've attached my name to you. The world will see all the things that God told Abraham to do and them doing it. And the world will see the things God said were going to happen and then those things happening. So there's, you do these things, yeah. I'll do my part, and the world will see it. Absolutely. On that note, let's go to the next one, Exodus chapter 20, because we're just going to see what Brian said become more true. <clears throat> Exodus 20. What's in Exodus 20? No cheaters. Don't look. Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. We're just going to look at the first four and see the name of God in the Mosaic Law. The name of God in the Mosaic Law. Somebody read for us Exodus 20, 1 through 7. We are, we're on the other side of the Red Sea. They've been in, uh, Israel's been in captivity. Abraham's descendants have been in captivity for 400 years. They're coming out of Egypt. I think this history we all know well. Exodus 20, 1 through 7. Somebody read that out loud for us. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. For that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. All right, what does it mean to take the name of the Lord in vain? What does it mean to take the name of the Lord in vain? Anybody ever use God's name? Uh, let's say when you stepped on a Lego at the middle of the night in the dark. Or when you're getting cut off in traffic. Is that what it's talking about? Using God's name in vain? Saying God's name when you're, you know, when you're mad, cursing at God. Yeah. I think more of a misrepresenting him, like kind of like in Job, where all his friends kept saying, "This is what God is doing," 
but they were taking his name in vain in lots. Like, you know, they were adding Saying lots. God was saying these things when God wasn't actually saying, saying those things. things. Yep. Yeah, they were misrepresenting. Yeah. 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 This is the golden calf that has brought us out of Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What is what is the Hebrew word take the name? Is it to take the name? Do they speak the name or is it all to take on the name? I think if you can find some nuances in that word, they're going to be distinctions without differences. Um, hold on one second. I think what they're going to be doing is saying, God, everything that you said in those verses for the next few chapters, we will do them. So, yes, we are. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Become God's people. Yeah. They are going to renew the Abrahamic covenant or cut the Mosaic covenant, however you would discern it, at Mount Sinai by saying we are going to do chapter 20, verse 7. We're going to take your name and we're going to do everything that you said. Yeah. Uh, what does it mean to like, Great question. Anybody have any ideas? What does it mean to take something in vain? Take the name in vain. You don't mean it? Okay. Yeah. Telling your off telling the police officer I promise I'll never speed again. No. Something like that. Misuse. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, let's go empty of its real means. Like putting on the Dallas Cowboys jersey and then not winning any Super Bowls <laughs> for three decades. It's like, you that's not how it's supposed to work, you know? So it's taking on the name and then basically saying, I'm not going to do what that name actually requires of me. Uh, I'm going to empty it is a great word, I think, of I'm just going to make it vain. I'm taking on the name and all I have is the name. It's like saying I do and get married, but then not going home with that person. And, and not keeping those promises. I just I wear the name, but that's it. I go to church, but I don't do anything else. Swearing? Mean like making a promise to God, like yeah. swearing I'm going to do something. Like swearing they're going to yeah. do something. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's I think there's similarity there in saying, you know, God, I'm making a promise to you. I'm somehow connecting myself with you, but I don't intend to ever do it. Yeah. The command here to Israel is you're going to take on the name. You're going to take on the commandments. You're going to take on the covenant. You're going to take on the commandments that I have given you. No other gods, no statues, lying, murder, stealing, one woman, man, don't covet. We just walk through the law. And, and taking the Lord's name in vain would be saying, okay, we'll take the name, but yeah, we're not going to do all that. Yeah. Um, let's pause there. We'll come back next week. We're going to keep thinking about what that means. We'll pick up some more from Abraham. Bring those sheets back if you would. That would be super helpful. Uh, we'll pick up there. Because we're basically going to see in the prophets, did they take the name in vain or not? We're looking through salvation history Starting with Adam, picking up with Abraham. God attached himself to Abraham. There's a covenant here with Moses. 
Is the name taking of God, did they do it in vain? The prophets are going to help us understand that as we get toward a fuller biblical meaning of what it means to take the name in baptism. Let's pray.